G'day B, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast. What episode are we up to? I think we're 33, so episode 13 of season 2 or something like that. I, I have no idea, I've, I've lost count. Hey look, I'm really excited about today's guest that we've got in. We've got Bart Campolo, who is a secular community builder, counsellor and writer who currently serves as a humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. And most of our listeners are going to recognize his surname, of course, as he's the son of evangelical celebrity preacher and author Tony Campolo. But as I said to him before we hit record, this is more about him than, than anything else. So I just want to say a big g'day and welcome to Australia, Bart. Well, thank you. And welcome back to Australia for me. I've been to your fair country a few times. Yeah, we were aware of that, weren't we, B? Yes, yeah, yeah. Friends of mine actually went and saw you speak, so it was it was interesting because I remember some some feedback. And at, at the time, I had already started journeying out of the faith. I was I was uh, coming out the other side, and they were actually youth chaplains. And I went in, and they I remember them saying something about oh, that's, Bart said something about you know these kids that he'd come across and he'd worked with and. There was these kids that seemed like they were beyond help, and he used this saying that their card was stamped. You know, from the from the day they they started, their card was stamped. And he goes, "It was like he didn't even believe that Jesus could intervene." And I work in a similar field, and I went, "Yeah, look, some kids' cards are stamped from day one. What we've got to do is move in and protect them, and we've got to to you know get around them, get community around them." So it was interesting to see that um, that reflection. So I'm wondering if that was a time when you were starting to flip a switch and going, "You know what? You know, it's funny because my evangelical orthodoxy sort of died the death of a thousand cuts." over 30 years, you know? So people say like, when did you start losing your faith? And I would say like, you know, like five minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And so it was, you know, it was always a work in progress. And you know, the, the, the one thing is I, I was kind of relentlessly honest about it. So as, as, as pieces would drop off, I would be open about them. So yeah, those guys, they just, they, they, they were there at the point at which Bart's still trying to believe in God but he's gotten past the point where he thinks that God's able to do all things for all people if you pray hard enough. Which we are certainly going to dig a bit deeper as we talk about that for sure. So, yeah, it was, it was a bit of an insight. It was one of my first insights into Bath. It, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I remember coming through Australia two very different times. One time when I was still very in the camp and, and one time when I came through um, it was with these guys from a group called Encido, and uh, they, they they were very progressive. And I was I was you know practically out of the game. I was like, you don't want me. And they're like, yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be good, you know. And so I you know I came through there once, right towards the tail end of my Christian journey. And um, so I, I had to uh, uh, de- depending on which time your friends saw me, I, I was I was cool or not cool. So Bart, tell us how you grew up, how you became a Christian. And what kind of Christian were you? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, I mean, these are very well-documented things, uh, when, when you, because, kind of because of who my dad is. But uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia on the campus of Eastern Baptist College at the time, um, where my dad was a professor, but was also kind of this guy who traveled around giving talks and writing books and was kind of like, you know, when I was a little kid, he wasn't such a big deal. By the time I was in high school, he had become a pretty big deal in the evangelical world. 
And so I grew up kind of, you know, kind of surrounded by evangelical Christianity. I, I didn't buy into it myself until I was a kid in high school and a guy on my soccer team led me to Christ in the context of a youth group. And so, you know, people say, well, what was that like growing up? You know, like, like, I think people think that because I was Tony Campola's son, that I sprang from the womb praising the Lord. But the truth of the matter is, is that I wasn't rebellious or anything. It just didn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I knew my, my father was sincere. Like, I, I knew he really believed in God, but I never really did until I was 15. And what happened to me was I got swept up in this youth group. It was like one of those big mega churches, 300 kids and a rock band. And um, I walked in the door and they were the nicest group of people I had ever met. And it was such a positive group. And like, I was a nice kid. Um, and this seemed like a club for nice people who wanted to do good things. And so I, I just got kind of swept up in being part of the gang. And uh, I quickly figured out that they were all evangelical Christians. And of course, like having grown up where I did, like I could speak that language. So I just kind of went along for, for a while and kind of faked it. And then, you know, one day you're on, a, you're on a retreat and the fire's going and everybody's singing. And I felt something, you know, like I had a transcendent moment. You know, the Holy Spirit came upon me. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it all seemed, it all became real to me. But I remember um, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet tour about 1986. I felt the same thing. Like I felt the same. <laughs> the same. It was a spiritual experience. Well, no, that's the thing. Like, you know, sometimes I'm around hardcore atheist types and they're like, you know, you must be so embarrassed that you talk about like feeling the presence of God or, you know, they've heard old sermons of mine that are online and they're like, you know, you talk about like, you know, being feeling like God was speaking to you and you must be so embarrassed by that. And I'm like, no, no, like. That stuff happened. I felt something. I heard something. Like people that don't believe in those kind of transcendent experiences, like they haven't been to enough Bon Jovi concerts or they haven't fallen in love with the right partner or they haven't used the right drugs or they haven't hiked on the right trail. Like, you know, those things happen. It's part of the human experience. Like you can induce those things in a laboratory, you know, or on a roller coaster. Um, the, the thing is, whatever narrative that you're in when you have that experience, it validates that narrative. So if, if I would have been on a Muslim retreat in, 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 in Afghanistan at that time, I would have gone like, Allah is real. And if I would have been in, on a Buddhist thing in, in, in India, that would have validated that. I, you know, I just happened to be in the Christian narrative when it happened. So I was like, that's Jesus. And then I was in, man. And then I was in. So where was the pressure from your family, if, if at all, right, to become a Christian at a younger age? I know a lot of our listeners will come from families who, whose parents would have been, you know, pressuring them to get them saved so they don't, you know, die and end up in hell and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's not the kind of Christianity you were living before you came to your own. I was under a tremendous amount of pressure to be a nice person. Um, my, my, you know, when I was growing up, my mother wasn't really into Christianity. She was a Baptist minister's daughter who had married like this bright rising star that she met in college. And, you know, she, she, her religion was kindness, but she wasn't really into all the Christian stuff until much later in the game. My dad was into it, but he wasn't, I think maybe because he worked with so many college students 
he knew better than to try to jam it down my throat. Um, you know, he sort of patiently waited. And sure enough, you know, this kid on my high school soccer team brings me to youth group and it had nothing to do with my dad. Um, as a matter of fact, the church I became a Christian and wasn't even sure my dad was the right kind of Christian. Um, he wasn't evangelical enough for them. So I, so I did, I, but, but there was a tremendous amount of pressure on me to, to, to be kind and, and to be compassionate and to look out for people. And so again, when I got, you know, when I, when I got into this Christian world and this was the thing, it, it resonated with me. Like those, those were my values. I mean, it was, it was, Christianity didn't make me a nice person. It was because I was a nice person that I was attracted to Christianity. Um, you know, or especially attracted to that version of it. Um, and so when I got in, I mean, you know, I, almost immediately I was swept up in this youth group and, and the things that we were doing, we were trying to reach out to kids in our youth group and trying to find lonely kids or sad kids or kids that were feeling left out of things and bring them in and make them feel connected and loved. And, you know, I was, I was all about that. It was, it was super exciting. I mean, when I became a Christian, the, the cool thing about it was it instantly gave me a sense of identity. It instantly gave me a sense of mission and a sense of purpose in the world. Uh, it instantly gave me kind of a code of ethics to live by and a group of people to call my brothers and sisters, you know, instant fellowship. I mean, so it, like it sort of answered all of the needs of my adolescence all at once. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I was I was so in. And then, you know, the next stage in my journey was the, the, the next summer. The first thing anybody asked me to do for Jesus was to run a summer camp in an inner city neighborhood in Camden, New Jersey, which is this little ghetto across the river from Philadelphia. And for Jesus, I, I went. And then like I was confronted with all this poverty and all this suffering in inner city, all the stuff you see in the movies. And I just was, you know, you're, you're a brand new Christian. You're full of love in your heart and you see poverty like this. And I was like, that's what I want to do with my life. And, and, you know, I literally spent the next 30 years being an inner city missionary in one form or another. You know, so, so that, you know, so that was kind of like my trajectory was, you know, I, I met, I, I, you know, I, I met this kid. He brought me into youth group. I got all into it. I ended up in the inner city. And over the course of the next 30 years, like not to put too fine a point on it, but like you're working in the inner city. And so like I was surrounded by real suffering and real injustice and just crazy ass stuff that no good God would tolerate. And we would pray for really basic stuff. You know, let this little girl not get raped. Let that little boy get off. You know, let, 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 that, let that young kid finally kick crack. And people would die and people would get raped. and slowly it dawns on you that the gospel doesn't work quite the same way in that neighborhood that it worked back in our neighborhood. And so, you know, my theology kept changing along the way. You know, you end up being friends with all these gay people. And so then you, you, you struggle and, you, you know, I, 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 got, I got gay friendly real early in the game. And then, you know, you, you have some friends that die who are really great people, but they, they're Muslims or they're, they're not anything. And you sort of you become a universalist. And so, like, I just, I slowly kept drifting in that direction to the point at which when I finally, when, there, when, when it was finally all over for me and I told people, like, yeah, I, I, I don't believe in God anymore. They were like, yeah, we knew that. We wondered when you'd figure it out. It was like coming out gay. We're like, everybody else was completely aware of it. But like, I was the last guy to know. It, 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 interesting when you reflect on 
growing up with you know we we know tony campolo he was he was a bit of a superstar in the scene that we were involved in in um in the pentecostal scene and you know he was is yeah he was huge is it and and you would think i mean i would think that you would get pressure at home to follow jesus it'd be jesus 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 but you're saying that it was the pressure was to be a nice person it seems like you were in quite an idealistic environment in, in that way and that it was very supportive. I mean, you've talked about, um, you know, universalism. You've talked about n- not only accepting gays but gay-affirming. Was that something that was supported by your parents? Oh, yeah. Like when I was in college, both my roommates were gay. And uh, I remember because I got an earring just for just on a lark. And this was way back in the day when, like, that, you know, that was a big deal. A guy gets an earring. And... I remember, and, and, and I'd had a bad experience in high school where I dated a girl who really fell hard for me. And when I broke up with her, she really felt bad and I felt really guilty. And so I didn't date anybody for a while. I just didn't want to, you know, get involved with all that. So my parents were like, he's not dating anybody and he's got an earring and his roommates are gay. And I still remember my mother sort of going like, hey, are, are you, are you, you know, are you gay? Because it's okay if you are. Like, like. Like, you know, you're fine here. And, you know, and, 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 you know, I was very offended at the time. I was like, how could you think I was gay? But like, you know, driving home afterwards, I thought like, you know, this was in the 80s, man. There weren't a lot of parents sending the message to their kids that like, if you're gay, you're cool. Just, just let us know. Um, and so, no, I, I, I did. I, I grew up in a pretty idyllic household for that stuff. And certainly at the end of the, at the, end of the road. I mean, you know, because I mean, I was I was a Christian leader for thirty years. I ran mission organizations. I recruited young people to live and work among the poor. I led, you know, thousands of people to Christ, which is weird to say right now. Um, but when it when it finally came to the end of the road, there was a lot I was worried about in terms of what was going to happen to me and to the people around me when I couldn't believe in God anymore. But the one thing I never worried about was that my parents would reject me. I knew it would hurt them. I knew it would be difficult for them. But it never occurred to me that my parents were going to like stop talking to me or that they would you know cord me off to a place where I was just to be evangelized or or that they would that they would seriously think, "Oh, now he's going to burn in hell for all eternity." By the time I left, you know, I, I knew my my parents weren't that kind of Christians ever, and certainly by the end of the game they weren't that kind of Christians. I mean, and frankly, I mean, you know, I, I, I talk to so many people who, you know, because people, because of my podcast, a lot of people reach out to me when they're going through religious transitions. And I coach a lot of people in that sort of space. The, you know, the, what they say is, wow, you know, you're, you must have lost everybody. Like, you know, you must, you, you know, so courageous of you to, to, to be so open. And I'm like, I, I didn't lose anybody. I didn't lose any friends over this thing. See, that's the thing for, for us coming from Australian Pentecostalism and a lot of people listening from, you know, that sort of charismatic background, at least over here in Australia. And I dare say other places in the world too, they would have lost their family and they have yeah, lost their oh, family. Yeah, I know, I know. And a lot of them are in the, in the atheist or agnostic closet. You know, they, their family don't even know. As a matter of fact, there's one person that's connected with our uh, Facebook group who has a relative who's a minister and they just don't talk about it. Right. And she barely sees him now. And that's, that's, that's what's happened. 
oh man, I mean, I've got mega church pastors that are in the closet, like still working, you know, evangelists, like Christian musicians, like I know all sorts of people and, 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 and they're not phonies, they're trapped. Like it's their job or it's their marriage or it's their relationship with their parents. And, and they're not like, it's not, they're not catastrophizing. They really would get cut off or they really would lose their marriage or they really, it really would irrevocably change the way all of their friends and family think about them to know. Um, it's, it, you know, I don't have a lot of judgment for people in the closet. Um, I, I, I understand. Um, and, and I think that sometimes, you know, when somebody like me, makes that transition we make it because we can and so like even when i think about like upton sinclair the, the american novelist of the last century once said that it's very difficult to convince a person to change their mind about something if their livelihood depends upon their not changing it and i think like well, what if it's not just their livelihood but what if it's their identity and their community and all their relationships. And so what happens is, is that sometimes the reason why people don't connect the dots in their theology and go like, this, this just doesn't hold together. It's not because they're stupid or not because they're not thoughtful. It's because like there's a little part of their brain that's going, don't answer that question because it's going to blow up everything. And so there are a lot of people that literally can't think in that direction because their instincts wisely tell them, like, that will be tragic. So you made this movie with your father. No, I, I didn't make it. I, my dad and a, a guy named John Wright, um, a, a really wonderful Irish filmmaker, Northern Irish filmmaker, he, he made it and we appeared in it. Okay, sure. So you're in this movie leaving my father's faith. And the thing about that movie, and I love that movie, by the way, and we want to sort of unpack that a little bit later, but it's said a few times at the beginning that you were worried about telling your family that you no longer believed, especially your dad. And so I had this preconception before this interview of what I thought that all meant. But hearing you now, I want to ask you, what, why were you worried then? If you came from this you know, freedom to step out of evangelical dogma and you had this great relationship besides, or maybe it is just about hurting them, but why were you so worried? I think there's two things. Um, I mean, the first is I knew it would be hugely embarrassing to my father. I mean, you got to imagine, you're Tony Campolo, this superstar preacher who's always preaching social justice and serving the poor. And your son is a ghetto minister, right? Who lives in the inner city and works with poor people and and travels around and he's like he's a good enough speaker that people think he's good but he's not so good that he threatens you i was perfect for my dad right like i wasn't threatening but i was you know he could go like that's my son that's the guy you know he's living out what i preach and so for me to leave it you know i was a high profile guy myself that that's that's tough you know i knew that was going to be hard for him but the other thing is this is that Christianity, and you guys know this, it's, it's, a, it's a tribe. Um, it's, got, it's got its own music. It's got its own way of doing things. It's got its own holidays, its whole thing. And so when you step out of it, you just, it's, like, it's like you're just not in the tribe anymore. And so like, 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 I'll give you an example. Like my, son is, my son is this beautiful guy who grew up and then 
um, dropped out of college and went out to Hollywood because he was going to be a big shot in, in the entertainment industry. And, you know, they always come home two years later messed up. My son actually goes and, like, he becomes a big-time songwriter. And, and he's doing great in Hollywood. And he's this, like, and he's getting married this year. And he's marrying somebody who's also doing great in Hollywood. And so between them, they're massively wealthy. Like, they've got money, like... They live in they live in on the beach in Malibu. They they're, they're those people, right? It's weird, man. When your kid has that kind of money, it just changes things. You know, like you can't call them up and say, "Hey, I saw a great deal at at at, at Costco. Like you should, I bought you a bunch of extra sneakers because I knew you could use." Like nothing matters. You go like, "Are you are you?" Are you at all dismissive of your kid's career or what he's doing or, or all the famous people he hangs with and all this stuff? Like, no, I'm excited. I'm thrilled. I'm excited. But it's hard sometimes because he's not in my tribe anymore. All of my friends live at one economic level, right? We all sort of live there and we have conversations about that. and We have similar problems and similar challenges economically. And my son's just not in that space. And so, like, it just puts him someplace different. Well, it's the same thing when somebody leaves a religion. It's like my dad used to come home and say, oh, this happened at this conference, and we did this. And I was like, well, you got to do this, and we, we should do that. And, like, and, and all of a sudden, I'm not on the team anymore. We hadn't just, you know, I had worked with him. We had done projects together. Right? Like, we were into this thing together. And so for me to pull out was really hard for him, really hard. Tell us about that moment where you, I mean, we've seen in the movie, you did a Thanksgiving dinner yeah. or after the dinner. Tell us about that moment. Like what was happening for you when you sat down with your mum and dad to tell them? Again, I mean, on some level, my dad and my mom, they knew, right? Like they knew. But making it public or, or, or saying the words out loud, that, that scene, I'm sort of like, hey, I'm not a liberal Christian. I'm not a progressive. I'm not even a heretical Christian anymore. I'm done. I'm out. There's nothing left. I mean, what was going through my mind was this is going to be really hard. For it's not hard for me. It, like, it didn't sneak up on me. I knew. Like, I knew. But it, 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 it was about integrity. But But the weird thing is, is that in my relationship with my parents, for me, like it never occurred to me not to tell them because as much as they valued my, my tribal membership, I think what they valued even more was that they felt like they had an honest and clean relationship with me where I really, they really knew who I really was. And, and, and I think it would have been even more painful if they ever found out that I had held that back from them. So it was, it was just it was just like, this, this is going to hurt, and we got to do it. You touched just a minute ago about your son. It's, not, it's something we didn't see in the movie. Um, how did your kids take it? Like, were your kids quite immersed within the Christian scene as well? No, because, I mean, you got to remember, like, by the time my kids are growing up, I'm already, you know, like, the kind of... You know, the, the kind of God I believed in towards the end of my Christian journey, you know, it was, you didn't count on him to show up and save anybody from cancer. Do you know what I mean? 
So like they didn't grow up in a, this heavy evangelical thing. You know, I was living in the inner city. We were just, we were just trying to love people. We weren't trying to win anybody over or anything. We were, we were very laid back. And my kids never really bought into Christianity. Um, they, 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 they were never, and, and, and my, my son in particular, he thought, it, you know, he, 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 by the time he was in high school, he thought it was all very, he was very challenging and ridiculous. And in some ways, you know, like the, he was like, oh, this, this is very validating for me. Thanks. Um, you know, sort of like my sister, who also never bought into Christianity, um, that was a real hard, like my sister and I were never super close for a lot of reasons. Um, but when I left the faith, it made it a lot, of, you know, and that, then we got close, not, not because of that. But like when I came back to her finally, it's like, look, I want to, I want to totally restart our relationship. Like, I don't like the fact that we're not close and I want to try to see if there's something we can do about that. It made it a hell of a lot easier when I wasn't carrying around that baggage because she had felt really, you know, she had felt like my parents and me are over here and she's over there. Yeah, well, all of a sudden, as you put it, you're now in her tribe. Absolutely, because a, a finer humanist, you will not meet than my sister. Like this is a person who's, doing, who's really living out a value system in a really, in a really diligent way. Um, you know, and, and, all of a, and who's also smart as a whip. And her husband's smart as a whip, and neither one of them, you know. And so all of a sudden, they were like, all right, now we can talk. You know, like, this was, it, it got a lot easier. And it wasn't like, now we can talk, about, talk shit about Christianity. It was now we can talk about what we think really happens in the world and how science can make us better people and, you know, how, how understanding things. And, like, what, what, how do we make the most of this life cognizant of the fact that when it's over, it's over and, and, and we won't exist anymore, or at least as far as we know. And so, you know, so it didn't, it wasn't about like, oh, now we're together and thinking Christianity is a joke. No, no, it's just now we're together and trying to pursue loving kindness in a secular way. And that, that's a much deeper bond than just being negative. I, I hear that your parents still instilled in both of you just this deep, humanism this deep love of people this you know you talked about this pressure to be a kind person um but also it looks like you know in spite of your rejecting of the evangelical christianity both you and your sister have still embraced a lot of what your your parents gave you oh yeah oh yeah absolutely absolutely and 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 this and and again a lot of the listeners to your show are not in this situation because even though their families were Christians, their families were caught up in legalism or their families were caught up in, in, in kind of an angry trying to stamp out sin in a really, you know, like, and, and looking for, looking for ways to draw a circle that, that excluded other people. And so like the fact that your parents are Christians doesn't guarantee that they instilled in you all these values of loving kindness or of, um, accepting people who think differently than you do or of caring about poor people. In fact, it's rare that Christians would, would in fact do that. Absolutely. So, so like, you know, in some ways, like I'm ready to move on from talking about my, my parents, not because they're not interesting to me, but because like, it, you know, it's sort of like uh, Brad Pitt talking about like how hard it is, you know, how hard it is to be handsome. And you're like, yeah, I wish I had that problem, you know? And so 
in some ways like, yeah, I've got these really like lucky me. I had these really nice Christian parents who, who made it easy for me to make, to, to, to stay on the journey. Um, but that's not most people's story. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times the real, the real catch point is if your family believes that if you're not a Christian, you're doomed to burn in eternity. It's almost impossible for them to accept you leaving the faith. Um, in some ways, I mean, if you have an evangelical friend who believes that, that hell stuff, and he's not actively trying to win you back to Jesus, he doesn't really like you very much. Do you know what I mean? Like on some level, they are, like, they are bound to do that. How could they not? You know, so, so I think that the only, you know, people say, like, can you be married? Can, if, a, if somebody deconverts, can the marriage survive? And I go, like, yeah, it often can, but not if the one person thinks the other person is a dead man or a dead woman walking. Like, that, that gets really hard, especially if there are kids involved. Because we treat people, yeah, we treat people differently. That's what we were talking about the other day. Do you remember, B? We were talking about how, you know, people that leave the faith and people say, oh, I'm going to start being kind to you and fill you with loving kindness, at least until you reach hell, and then I'm going to stop, right? So it's almost like if you really believe that, why bother being kind to them? You know, God's not going to be, so why should I? It's almost like, you know, the ultimate model to you is cut them off, have nothing to do with them, see you in hell. Oh, I mean, but come on, you know better than that. You, you, you love them because you're still hoping that you'll win them back. You're waiting for their life to fall apart and then you'll be there to pick up the pieces. I mean, like we all did this whole evangelical thing where we, we were never nicer to people than, you know, than when they were, they were out of the faith. Like that's when, you're, that's when you want to be nice to them, you know, because you're trying to bring them back. And you go like, oh, but they know you're never coming back. And you go like, yeah, but th th like literally we... The, the, the true evangelical is duty bound to believe that there is never anyone who is beyond reclamation. Unless, of course, you declare publicly that somebody's card is stamped from the beginning, Bart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's really interesting. And, and I think this might have been in the episode uh, with Bart Ehrman. So the Bart episode um, of your, your podcast. Bart Squared. But that's right, which was a great episode, I've got to say. But you talked about no longer believing in God and this actually putting you in a greater focus on caring for your fellow humans and making the most out of now, which is sort of a little bit different um, and it's a different angle um, now that you're out. Can you tell us about that? How does that look in your life? You know, I mean, in some ways it's kind of like, because it's funny because Bart Ehrman is this great biblical scholar and his last book was about sort of, hell and the concept of hell. And like when you really think about, or even just the concept of heaven, have you ever seen a depiction of heaven or a description of heaven that sounded like anything you'd remotely want to be a part of? Like I, like I remember they were like, we'll be praising God 24 hours a day for eternity. And I thought like, oh my gosh, this sounds horrible. Like I can't stand the 15 minutes of praise music before I speak. Like I, you know, like, I, you know, that's my, you know, the idea of singing glory, hallelujah choruses, you know, forever. That's not my idea of heaven. That's my idea of hell. Um, but, but you know, so that like the idea of eternity sort of evacuates 
any event of any urgency, like I need to talk to, I need to talk to my mother, well, or I can do it tomorrow, or I can do it a thousand years from now, or I can do it a million years from now. Like, like the, the, the thing that gives urgency to life is the very finitude of it. It is precisely the fact that that our our time is limited that makes it so precious and that makes it so valuable. I mean, I've been at hospital bedsides. And people do business there. They, I should have forgiven you. I'm sorry. Like, or, you know, I never said I loved you. Or, you know, here's something I always wanted to express. And you go, like, why are they doing that? And I go, it's because of the urgency of the moment. But what if you had all the time in the world? Then maybe you never get to saying what you need to say or doing what you need to do. And so, you know, for me, recognizing, coming to grips with the fact this life was all I had to work with. Made me think like, golly. It, it, I mean, it's such an incredible privilege when you think about it to be a conscious human being, to have, like, to have a mind that works or to have hands that work or to have eyes that work, to be able to see and experience and to fall in love and to eat food and breathe air and, and have sex. Like these things, like, like this life is just such an incredible privilege. I mean, what percentage of the matter and energy in the known universe gets to be conscious? Like a vanishingly small amount. Like this is, so, so like the fact that it's brief, in some ways I go like, well, golly, who's to complain? You know, who's to complain? Like this is an unbelievable opportunity. And the question I have is like, how do you make the most of it? And the more research I do, the more I look around me, the people that seem to be getting the most out of this life, that live the longest, that experience the highest degree of satisfaction, that, that, that there are always people that do the same basic stuff. There are people that have cultivated a handful of loving relationships, that do work that they think makes things better for other people, that have developed practices of gratitude and actively sort of cultivate wonder and amazement and interest in learning new things about, about how wonderful the world is. You know, and, and, and there are people, generally speaking, that also have cultivated enough worldview hum humility that they don't take great credit for being so enlightened that they go, like, wow, I'm just lucky. You know, if I'd have been born somewhere else to somebody else, I'd be thinking something different. And so for me, I just kind of like, you know, I, I did, I looked around, I saw, like, well, those are the things to do. Like, let's do that. Let's be serious about that because I want to make the most of this life. You know, the truth is, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I didn't exist for 13 billion years. And it didn't bother me at all. I, I felt no pain. I, was, I, I had no existential angst. It was, fine. it was fine not existing. And I suspect that when I die, I will not exist for perhaps 13 billion more years. And I have serious doubts as to whether that's going to be a problem. This, this moment is my brief vacation from non-existence. This is like, I'm not worried about those other things. This is amazing. This is, you get to be, you get to be the part of the universe that's aware. And so for me, like, it is precisely the fact that in such a vast universe, there is this moment of joy that makes me not want to squander it. And, and honestly, I didn't feel that way when I was a Christian. I didn't have that same sense of urgency. It felt like I had literally all the time in the universe. That's an amazing insight. So my question for you now then, 
the movie was very, and look, this, this word is sort of a dirty word, especially among the ex-evangelicals. I don't mean it that way, right? I mean, as an observation that the movie was very dualistic. I think in part because it's about two people at sort of opposing points, evangelical Christianity and this atheism or neo-atheism. So what about all those points in between from your perspective, right? Not from your father's perspective, but what about all those points in between and even outside of that duality, like non-Christian deities, supernatural dimensions without a God, near-death experiences? Where do you sit with all that? You know, am I like the thing is once you when you when you extricate yourself from something as as deep and serious as my evangelical Christianity, I mean it's pretty it's pretty mind boggling because you go like wow, I I was not only believing but I was also teaching people that somebody rose from the dead after being three like that 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 we were going to live in eternal utopia that you know like that red seas parted that you know and like when you finally get out of it the longer you're out of it the more you're like did i really believe that like that stuff makes no there's no evidence that that any of that stuff could happen i got no evidence of it and and all the miracles like people always brought me miracles of people getting cured from cancer but nobody ever got an amputee growing their limb back because like the the cancer thing you can fudge but the amputee thing like it never happens and so like in the end, by the time I worked my way out of Christianity, I had worked my way out of any form of supernaturalism. Like I just, I haven't seen any evidence for it. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. I, I struggled with the super, the supernatural was always the, the part of Christianity I liked the least. I was the least into the demons and the, and, and, and angels and all that stuff. And, and frankly, heaven and hell, that was never what motivated me. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't serving Jesus because I, like I wanted to win a ticket to heaven. Like I wasn't sure about it for most of the time. I, I just thought it was a good way of life. But in the end, when the whole thing fell apart and I didn't believe any of it, I'm just not a supernaturalist. Now, but here's the thing. Most human beings by nature, like evolutionarily, evolutionarily determined are supernaturalists. Like it is our human nature to, if we don't have an answer for something, to make up a story. And to believe it. And, and, and actually, evolutionarily, you will do better on the savanna if when you see rustling in the bushes, you, you, you imagine that there's something out there that's going to come and get you. Because like, even if it isn't there most of the time, you're still better off running. And so in the end, it's not surprising. Like, you know, all, all these atheist types are like, oh, we just, if we just need to eliminate Christianity and like wipe, you know, we'll convince everybody that there isn't a God. You could convince everybody that there wasn't a God today, and you wait three weeks and they'll invent them all over again. It is human nature to believe in God. Like the first thing that happens to us when we're born is we learn if you cry out, somebody comes to meet your needs. You go, so Bart, when you get in trouble, do you sometimes go like, help me? Yes, of course. Like that's, and that you say that's a vestigial tale of your Christianity. Maybe, or maybe it's just human nature. But the fact that matters is like whether it's Christianity or something else, in every tribe, everywhere, as long as human history has come been around, people make up a story in which there's something supernatural going on. Now, I don't think that makes it true, but I think it makes it common. And so when you meet people who believe that stuff, they're not stupid. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of education and will to not believe in God. They're not stupid. And, and, 
The other thing is they didn't choose to believe in God any more than you chose not to. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I didn't decide not to believe in God. I lost the ability to do so. It ha- I, didn't, I didn't decide to leave Christianity. It happened to me, right? Can you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure, 100%. I can remember walking into I can remember walking into a church service late 90s and you know to quote you know Spurgeon or Wesley the the, the heavens were as brass yeah. all of a sudden yeah, yeah. it just wasn't there anymore so totally and it wasn't a decision on my part I was invested in ministry my whole life was about this thing it totally turned everything on its head completely wouldn't have been something I'd chosen right but but but, but it's the other way around too is like you grow up around all these people that believe and it's taught to you since you're knee high on a grasshopper and you like, and, and so I know, I know people that no matter what happens, you could not convince them that there isn't a God. And so it makes like, so on some level, when somebody believes something like that, I want to have enough humility to say that if I was raised the way that person was raised, and if I had those per- that person's experiences, I would probably believe what that person believes. On some level, if if you if if you're at the place where you are right now, like it's because it's not just, it's because you could, it's because you had the ability to think the way you think now. And not everybody has the experiences or the opportunities or just the you know the the the, the brain that's lined up the way your brain is lined up to think that way. And so you just go like, okay, I better not make my idea of what, of an ideal world, one in which nobody believes in God. Cause it's just, it's unrealistic and it's not even nice. It's not like, it's not kind to those people. It comes back to what we we're talking about before that there's this freedom that you had to step outside of dogma. And you know, a lot of families from fundamentalist churches and hardcore charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, they don't allow their children to have that freedom for this exact reason, because maybe intuitively or maybe experientially, they know that people that step out and start to ask those questions, they oftentimes, or at least sometimes, don't they don't back. come back. No, no. I mean, and that's right. And, you know, I mean, my dad says, I should have known that you were not going to make it. I, I should have known what was happening when you stopped going to church. Because I was still preaching and all stuff, but like there was no local church I wanted to be a part of. And so, you know, my family and I, we weren't going to church. We had good friendships with Christians. We hung out and stuff, but we didn't go to church. And he was like, I should have known because he said, if, you know, even in the Bible, it says, you know, don't, don't stop meeting together, you know, stay in fellowship. Like, well, of course it's, 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 it's a counterintuitive kind of fantastic story. It constantly needs to be reinforced. So if you step out of fellowship, if you don't have, if you're not surrounded, if you don't create a, a, a wall around yourself where people are going, oh, is it true? Yes, it's true. You believe it's true. I believe it's true. Yeah, we believe it's true. Of course it's true. Like let's sing a song about how true it is. Like if you don't have that reinforcement, it's very hard to keep it going. You know, and so and so there's a yeah, there's a real sense. Sorry, I'm it. still laughing at sing a song about how true it is because that's exactly what we do. As a matter of fact, let's let someone stand at the front and tell us all how true it is for the yeah. next forty five minutes. It needs to be constantly re- reinforced. And and you know, I mean, I remember Ricky Gervais, uh, the comedian, once talking to Stephen Colbert, and he said, "The thing I like about science is," he said, "You could take all the science books in the world, throw them in the trash heap." 
wait a thousand years, and they'd all be written again in exactly the same language. Like, like the same formulas would work, the same theorems. He said, he said if you took Christi all the Christianity and threw it in a trash heap and, and, and wiped it from the face of the earth, nobody would, people would invent something, but they couldn't invent that again. It's it, like, like, it's very specific. Islam, they're, they're all like, like, there's something about these things where like, they're so off the wall. They're so bizarre. I mean, I used to say, like, it's too good to be true. Now it's too good not to be true. Like, you know, the fact that it's absurd is what makes it, you know, believable. And, you know, but, like, it's not. That, that, that sounds good from a pulpit. But the fact of the matter is, is that this stuff is batshit crazy. And it only makes sense when you are within. It makes sense from the inside. Even the Bible teaches that. Even the Bible teaches that, that, that it's foolishness to those who don't believe. You know? And so on some level, you have to really guard that, that you have to guard somebody's faith because, you know, facts are dangerous and information is dangerous. And certainly pluralism is dangerous because when you start teaching that Christianity is just one religion like all the others, People start comparing them like, wait, they all, oh, they all have characteristics. Everybody's got a book. I thought we were the only ones that had a book. And every, you know, everybody's got their miracles. And all of a sudden it just looks like, it just looks like one of a, it just looks like one of a, of a, one of a very large kind. But this is absolutely fantastic. And there's so much here. In fact, there's enough for two episodes. So what we're going to do is we're going to put a little bit of a pause now and we're going to end this episode, but we're inviting everybody to quickly jump straight into the next episode, which is going to be part two of this amazing conversation with Bart Campolo. So we'll see you all in our next episode. <laughs>